You know, we, we, we went through today, uh, just probably in the course of our day, probably whined about a few things, and, and then we, we come into this place and we enjoy uh, the opportunity to, to rightly divide the word of truth and open the scriptures and study. And I, I wanted to take a minute to reflect on why we have that privilege. Uh, we live in a nation that we, we hold these freedoms that are, are precious, and um, I, want you, I, I want to take a little time to go through why we have those freedoms, um, how we came about obtaining them. And so we're going to spend some time in the study doing that. We can shut those down and lift the lights a little bit so we can spend some time in the Word. Uh, let me pray, and then we'll, we'll do that together. Lord, thank you for your Word. And God, as we, uh, we're not doing an exegetical study, Lord, and, and I, I know that you call us to rightly divide the Word of truth, and in a sense, Lord, this is topical. But Lord, we do want to stop to say thank you. And you command us to give thanks in all things, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for us. And Lord, you, you give us specific days, and not that we've celebrated every Veterans Day or taken time to thank veterans, but Lord, just today in touching my heart, I, I pray that you administered all who are present, that we're grateful for the gifts you've given us, and we, we know the call upon our lives to secure these freedoms as the Apostle Paul said, to stand fast, therefore, in the liberty for which Christ has set you free. And Lord, apathy doesn't protect liberty. Laziness doesn't protect liberty. And, and God, we've become apathetic in our nation. And, and here we see men and women, and at last count, I think 665,000 men and women have died protecting this nation. Another 2.8 million have been wounded. And uh, through the course of the lifetime of this nation... And, and so, Lord, I, I ask that you would touch us tonight and inspire us, strengthen us to serve you in a greater capacity, that these truths that we hold to be self-evident, Lord, that we would be diligent to protect them for the future generations, that apathy, God, would no longer reflect the body of Christ, but we would be willing to stand. And so, God, I pray your blessing on the study and our time together as we just reflect on stories and lives and things that matter. In Jesus' name, amen. If you came for a Bible study tonight, um, it's not going to happen. And uh, you had time to leave during the prayer, but I didn't tell you that. So, And if you leave, I won't be offended. Uh, I was thinking in regards to Veterans Day, I looked up the definition of a veteran. Someone having extensive experience in some field, or someone who has served their, in their nation's military. And um, obviously, we're focusing Veterans Day on those who have served in the military. Problem is, I don't think churches take enough time to recognize Veterans Day. And it's sad. And I think, uh, you know, we, we take time to recognize veterans often, but today especially, to do that, I was, I was deeply moved by Travis. He's the most positive man I think I've met, and uh, just... Funny as all get out. And um, he just, you know, the idea of it's, it's a new normal. I mean, think of all the things we complain about in the course of a day. And, and the things we whine about in the course of a day. Here's a man who's lost all of his limbs. Um, and, and somebody asked him, said, why did, why, did you, why did you go into the military? He said, well, I was, um, I was playing football in college. And um, I missed my girlfriend, so I left school to go back to be with her. And when I, I got there, I found out she had another boyfriend. And uh, that upset me, so I joined the army. 
He said, I'd like to tell you that it was noble and all kinds of things. He said, no, I, I did feel a call to God and country. And he's a Christian. He loves the Lord. Um, he said, but I'll be, I'll be candid with you. When I was laying there in the hospital bed thinking, I don't know how you're going to make any good out of this. And he was upset with the Lord. And he was, he was real frustrated. He said uh, folks would bring him scriptures and he couldn't even look at them. He said after a while he realized this is the new normal. And God hasn't left. And my, my, I'm still a father. I'm still a husband. Uh, my wife didn't leave me. She stayed by my side. She's a believer. And, and he just said, you know, Lord, let, let's, let's get this done for your glory. I guess the, the perspective for us is whatever we're going through, the reality is we have the ability to always serve God. You know, we're going through the study in the book of Acts, and we're seeing shortly we're going to engage in the study of Paul's life because he comes back on the scene as we saw in our last study. And the course of his life is going to be spent in prisons and and beatings and and hardships. I think about the, the, the relentless whining that we experience in the body of Christ. And it's time to kind of put it into perspective that... We, we're, we're so focused on our problems that we, we lose perspective of the calling. And, um, and, and the challenges that are there are, are for purposes that God wants to use for his glory. And to, to watch Travis overcome that and see how God can use this, uh, fascinating. I mean, you've got to figure, you know, he's, he's putting his life together. And uh, um, just putting the prosthetics on and getting ready for the course of the day, just getting up the stairs and sitting down and, and eating. We watched him eat and, and, you know, with this electric arm and coming down and he would take the fork and, and he had this ability with uh, the tendons, uh, the connections in his arm as he would flex his muscles, the, the, the machinery would turn it in a 360 degree angle so his fork would spin and he'd say, I have to catch it on a merry-go-round as it eats. But, uh, uh, you know, giving thanks for the food, giving thanks for all these things. I, he says, I give thanks to the Lord that I have this ability. Uh, Gary Sinise, uh, uh, he and a number of other folks put together a home for him uh, so he can cook meals for his kids. And so obviously we take for granted, we come up to the stove and we begin to cook. But if you're in a wheelchair, you can't come up to a stove. So they had to create it so the wheelchair would fit under the stove so that he could access the burners and cook for his kids. Uh, lights that go on and off and, and, and ability to be able to operate in that context. We flick on a light switch, we just go through our day. And the, the number of things we don't give thanks for and we take for granted, uh, this, this is the course of his life. And um, so I was thinking, we're going to celebrate veterans. Um, looking at, at Bill Blair, I was moved by him as well. Nothing but joy for the nation. I talked to another man named uh, Bob Donovan. Uh, loves this nation. Um, served, uh, met um, Captain Hill. Uh, just so many people that I was blown away by. And I started to reflect on my father. I went to go visit him on Saturday. My dad had three tours of Vietnam. I was thinking about my godfather, who was on the USS Casson um, in, in Pearl Harbor, December 7, 1941. Um, I was thinking of uh, Captain James Stark, who was a POW in the Hanoi Hilton. They hung on a meat hook. Used to beat the daylights out of him. He survived. He loves the Lord. Um, I remember... Remember Captain, or excuse me, at the time, it was Admiral Stockdale. Admiral Stockdale at our Christmas party. Uh, you remember he was a vice presidential candidate with Ross Perot. And uh, I remember him sitting in our living room with his, I think it was his left leg extended, and everyone had to walk around his leg in a crowded Christmas party in our home because his leg had been fused as he had broken it. He was the highest ranking uh, officer in the Hanoi Hilton. 
And uh, they left him for dead on a number of occasions. And one of the reasons why he couldn't hear during the debates is because they had batted his ears so much he'd lost hearing in his ears. Um, I remember... Um, I remember when he would walk the streets of Coronado uh, with Alzheimer's and uh, they'd, they'd bring him home to Sybil, his wife. Um, and that was with my dad. Um, you know, he's, he's got Alzheimer's and, and it's, it's kind of come full circle to witness that. Um, and to hear the stories of how he endured these hardships. I remember on the 4th of July parades in Coronado watching the World War II veterans go by. I, I remember World War I veterans. My father remembers Civil War veterans. And they're, they're passing by in the scene. And one of the things that you, you don't quite grasp is uh, in relation to World War II, when I say in 10 to 15 years, um, all the World War II veterans will have passed from the scene. Uh, 1.7 billion people uh, took part in World War II. 61 countries were part of this hellish war. Three-fourths of the world's population took part in World War II. Uh, five to six million Jews were killed in the Holocaust. It's estimated that 55 million people died in, uh, in World War II. 25 million in the military. 30 million were civilian. Just a, a hellish aspect. Um, the idea that some aspects of war, they're, they're just so miserable and they're never right, but regardless of war, the idea is we support veterans. And you think war is unnecessary. Well, I was looking at portions of Scripture, and I, I looked at Deuteronomy 20. When you go near a city to fight against it, then proclaim an offer of peace to it. And it shall be that if they accept your offer of peace and open to you, then all the people who are found in it shall be placed under tribute to you and serve you. Now, if the city will not make peace with you, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. And, and we go through this, and people say... It's unethical to have war. But you look at Romans 13, and it, and it says that, we, we're, that, that those who carry the sword are ministers of justice to execute wrath on those who would do evil. It goes further. People look at that and they say that we're supposed to submit to all positions of authority as though somehow the American Revolution, uh, based on Romans 13, was a violation of, of submission to authority when we rebelled against the British. But it also goes on to say that those authorities are to do good. And they don't do good. And, and the authority that's granted by them, God appoints all positions of authority. But he's also given us authority to establish those governments upon the land based on natural law so that we, the, the purpose of the Noahic Covenant was to protect mankind. So you don't submit to a communist government that is annihilating millions of people. The, 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 the German pastors submitted to Hitler based on Romans 13 and watched a holocaust occur. That is not what God intended in the writings of those passages of Scripture. Our responsibility is to defend those liberties and to stand fast in, those, in the liberty for which Christ has set us free. We have an obligation to defend that. Now, when we consider Veterans Day, I want, I want to share with you a couple of thoughts. First of all, it is the veteran, not the preacher. It's the veteran, not the preacher, who's given us freedom of religion. The First Amendment that we have has been secured by veterans. It was established by Scottish Covenanters, which were 70% of the Revolutionary War generals, who had already defended religious liberty and freedom in Scotland, and they were massacred in, in, the, in the grass market in Greyfriars Church by the British. Because they said that the king is subjected to Christ, and when he comes into the church, he is a congregant like anyone else. The king is not the head of the church. Christ is the head of the church. And based on that, they massacred them. 
And these covenanters then immigrated to Ireland, set up schools of higher learning. The British came in, subjected them there. They came to the United States, and when the British came there, they finally just said, look, we've been kicked out of Scotland, we've been kicked out of Ireland, we're not leaving here. And they fought. And they're the ones that established the religious liberty of the First Amendment. A a liberty, by the way, that we've been given. And liberty, like muscles, if you don't exercise them, you lose them. And the apathy in the body of Christ that we don't defend these is one of the reasons why we're here today. It wasn't, it wasn't a preacher that defended that. It was a veteran. Now, our veterans that come back having fought wars, especially in Iraq and Afghanistan and around the world, and they come back in the areas for Fallujah and all these other areas where we defended and we established these things, all of that area has been given up, and they come back to a nation where they're not allowed to have their chaplains declare anything in Jesus' name. We're, we're watching as the church is being subjected and we're losing these liberties that they fought to defend. And what they come back to is a, is a church that is apathetic in, in creating a land worth defending. So the other thing is, it's the veteran, not the reporter. And I, I, I was watching uh, Kyle Jory, who's the editor of the Acorn. He said, I hope to see all of you at the Conejo Creek. I'm going to keep attendance for the council members and make sure you're there. And I said, well, I'm not going to be there. I'm going to be at the Reagan Library. And I was thinking, it's not the reporter, it's the veteran who's given us the freedom of press. I mean, we would all be speaking German right now if it wasn't for veterans. We wouldn't have the freedom of the press. It it would be propaganda that would be infused upon all of us. Now, today we're facing that. And the church, again, needs to, to fight for that. The veteran, not the poet, has given us the freedom of speech. You get to say the things you say because somebody has defended those. The veteran, not the campus organizer, has given us the freedom to assemble. The veteran, not the lawyer, has given us the right to a fair trial. The veteran, not the politician, has given us the right to vote. And the veteran who salutes the flag, who serves under the flag, he's the one who's protected all these rights. Don't take that for granted. It it requires that these be defended. I was thinking about the the men and women who fought in World War II, how we're, we're, we're quickly forgetting them. We're quickly forgetting the purpose of this nation. I mean, I look at, I walked through London when we went over the, for the Reagan, Thatcher, Pope, John Paul tour. This is, a, this is a nation which was considered the British Empire, that the sun never set on the British Empire. They were instrumental in the propagation or the, or the, or the dispersion of the gospel throughout the world. In Victorian England, the, the expanse of the gospel has never been equal to what occurred with the British Empire. And, and they said at the turn of the century, 1903 or 4, 90, 90, 95% of England went to church on a Sunday. In 2004, less than 4% of England went to church on a Sunday. This was a nation that was, was, was the pinnacle in many respects of culture. And, and the language, the English language for communicating thought and principle has never been equaled. And now we're watching as we were walking through on Veterans Day, which is Remembrance Day, I think, in Canada and also the British Empire. And around Parliament, they, they sell these red poppies. And, and the, the uh, moat around Parliament was absolutely covered in these red poppies. Yet the nation is under siege. That day, uh, they, they had a Muslim extremist cut off the head of, of a British veteran who was walking with his, his military service shirt, and on the street, he put him down, they had the videotape, it was why we were there, and beheaded him, and a woman stood to defend him, and nobody did anything. 
The nation has lost its bearing and its direction, and here we are watching as England is about 20 years ahead of us. In the absence of the church, the culture declines. And, and the defense, what are we defending? What, what do we fight for? You see, war is hellish. It's not hell. Hell is way worse than war, but war is hellish. And, and why do we fight? To, to, to stave off evil. Evil comes to steal, kill, and destroy. It's relentless. But we, we don't define who the enemy is, and we, we have no idea who we are. And thus, we lose our bearing, and whatever we're fighting for, all of a sudden, it's, it's disillusionment, because if you're fighting for territory, everything you fought for in Fallujah is gone now. And now you say, well, I'm just fighting for the man next to me, or the person here. But the reality is, we're fighting for ideals that need to be protected and instilled by a culture that has a commanding officer, which is the Lord. I was thinking of the, the fact that, that the veterans in our presence and, and especially in our church and in our community, I'm, I'm, I'm touched by that. You know, less than, I think it's less than 7% of those who, who serve in the military would in, in wartime face combat. It's a very small percentage. But I know every veteran I've met was willing to, to engage completely and fully in the supportive aspect of it. Now, the other thing that touched me when I was walking around Parliament and seeing all these poppies and seeing this, I was moved by the greatness of the British Empire and what it meant to me because we were studying Churchill's life and we'd just gone to the Churchill bunkers in the war room where he had defended Western civilization. And by the way, for those of you who don't know, Churchill was a believer. It was Mrs. Everest who led him to the Lord, educated him. He probably never attended faithfully a church, nor uh, he may have been christened or infant baptized, but... I don't know that he ever ascended to uh, church membership, so to speak. But he had a Christian worldview that would put the majority of pastors in our country and also in Britain to shame. He understood what was worth fighting for. It's easy to be behind a pulpit and declare immorality and do nothing about it. You know, when, when Abraham Lincoln, who, who fought to end slavery and did the Emancipation Proclamation, and, and 650,000 people died on a field of battle, and he got a bullet to the back of his head. The only thing that the pulpits did that following Sunday was to decry the fact that the president had died on Good Friday in a theater. I mean, they, they missed that completely. And this is a man who, too, who also had a Christian worldview, never was baptized, probably never joined a church, but had an understanding of God and Savior, unlike the majority of the pastors in the nation. And he had put it all on the line. This spot right here where I stand is very comfortable. It is the most comfortable spot in America. Now there's a huge attrition rate because I think most pastors fall out of it because they they are forced to be challenged. And the reason why it's easy is because you can decry immorality. You You can decry these things. But are you doing anything about it? Now, it's going to be a lot tougher to be behind this pulpit in times to come because we are losing all of those sheltered aspects that the church once held. They're going away quickly. And I would say in 10 to 15 years, you're going to see a decimation of the First Amendment and religious liberty in our nation, unlike anything you've ever witnessed if, if we don't start doing something. 
Churchill, when he was facing the evacuation of Dunkirk on June 4th, 1940, all the British uh, expeditionary forces um, were watching as Hitler was just moving in rapidly into France. They all got into Dunkirk and they were able to successfully evacuate the British army on any boat they could find to get back to the Isles of Britain. And, and once they had gotten there, uh, it was a retreat. And, and, and Churchill said, look, we don't celebrate defeat. But he got on the radio. And let me just share with you what he did. He got on the radio and he spoke to the British people. And he said, we shall go on to the end and we shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans and we shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds and we shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills and we shall never surrender. And even if, which I do not for a moment believe, this island or a large part of it were subjugated and starving, then our British Empire, beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle until, in God's good time, the new world, with all its power and might, steps forth to, to the rescue and the liberation of the old. He understood that he was fighting evil. Now, we don't have that concept. Who are we fighting? Who are we fighting? We can't even define the enemy because we have no ability within the civic structure to declare that there is absolute value, there is absolute morals. We can't even declare that we are a Christian nation and, and, to fight and, and declare the enemy to be a Muslim nation or an extremist Muslim nation. We have no foundation, they're eroded because the church hasn't engaged in the culture. And so our veterans are fighting and they defended this. Now this is what was fascinating is uh, 14 days later, Churchill wrote this. Now, mind you, all of Britain had no, they had nothing. We were waiting for the Lend-Lease for America to at least help Britain, and they were the last outpost in Europe as Hitler was just marauding through all of Europe. And, and de Gaulle, President de Gaulle, all the French forces didn't evacuate, and they completely surrendered and folded to Hitler. And he comes forth on the radio, de Gaulle does, and he gives this speech that just depresses the remainder of the Western world that hadn't fallen to Hitler. And he tries to send some sort of a message to the, the French resistance to stand firm. And then Churchill follows de Gaulle's speech, and this is what he shared. And this is what turned the tide. And by the way, what Churchill did was done by words. The power of words is what, trans, what transforms the world. We rightly divide the word of truth, which is living and breathing and sharper than any two-edged sword. It establishes governments and it transforms cultures. And with that understanding, by the way, when he gave the evacuation of Dunkirk on June 4th, the only French word he used, he used the entire English language. He refused to use a French word. And the only French word he used was the word surrender at the end of that. And the idea is we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. He wrote on June 18th, as de Gaulle had given his speech of desperation, he said what General Wagan called the Battle of France is over, and I expect that the Battle of Britain is about to begin. Upon this battle depends the survival of Christian civilization. Could you imagine defining the terms? Upon this battle depends the survival of Christian civilization. Upon it depends our own British life and the long continuity of our institutions and our empire. The whole fury and might of the enemy must very soon be turned on us. Hitler knows that he will have to break us in this island or lose the war. 
If we can stand up to him, all Europe may be free and the life of the world may move forward into broad sunlit uplands. But if we fail, and the whole world, including the United States, including all that we have known and cared for, will sink into the abyss of a new dark age made more sinister and perhaps more protracted by the lights of perverted science. Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duties and so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say this was their finest hour. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know if we have the wherewithal to reestablish something that's worth fighting for. If my people were called by my name will humble themselves and turn from their wicked ways and pray, then I will hear from heaven and heal their land. But what is absolutely necessary right now is that we fervently fight to defend and advance what Christ has called us to do on this earth. By words, establish a nation that is worthy to defend. I was thinking of General Sherman. He's the one who marched down to Atlanta. It was fascinating because um, Abraham Lincoln, is there, is there, are you guys hot? Seems a little warm in here, maybe. A little bit, Okay. Abraham Lincoln um, knew that he was going to lose election to General McClellan. And uh, he, he stood and, and went, um, I, I, I want to, let me just pull this up because it's a fascinating outline in relation to what Lincoln did. And I've shared this before, but Horace Greeley, who was an editor for uh, the, uh, the major newspaper on the Eastern Seaboard, was the one who uh, allowed Lincoln or helped Lincoln to get into office in the Lincoln-Douglas debates as he had, he had printed those up and down the Eastern Seaboard. And this, this upstart uh, with this brand new party called the Republican Party started by 19 people in Rapaum, Wisconsin for the sole purpose of abolishing slavery in 1854. 1860, they have an influx in the House and the Senate. They get a president elected by Abraham Lincoln. And... Um, he comes into office, and the minute that he steps into office, actually eight days before he's sworn in, um, a handful of states already secede from the Union, the first being South Carolina, the first to secede from the Union. He comes into Washington under death threat, and they, they tell him to dress like a woman, and then he's lampooned uh, across the nation as, as a fear monger, as he's, he's dressed as a woman because they had no secret service or any agents, and they were fearful of, of his uh, assassination. And he comes into Washington and he's absolutely uh, overwhelmed. And the nation begins to separate and divide. And, and he had been an atheist early on in his life. Uh, in Springfield, he'd written a number of things. But he'd come to Christ, especially in the death of his son. And, and uh, he, he, his, his mother, Nancy uh, Lincoln, was a devout woman. And he reflected back on that. And as he gets into office and he starts to, to push this fight against the South to preserve the Union... He's so moved by Frederick Douglass, uh, who was the first black man to be invited into the White House, not as a servant or a slave, but as a human being. And this, this idea of abolitionist rights and Uncle Tom's cabin was passing through the nation. He was standing for this purpose, understanding this call. And he was ridiculed because even those in the North didn't think it was worth, fi worth fighting for. And I, and I want to give you an illustration. It's, it's similar to abortion in our nation. 
we, we, Christians decried as wrong, but we're really not moved to do anything about it. I mean, you go through the course of your day and you really don't think anything about it. I mean, you know, over 50 million babies have been aborted since 1973, wholesale slaughter. And, and if we really as Christians believe that to be a child, a baby in the mother's womb, and, and we struggle with that. And we're also concerned with the moms because they're victims. There's two victims in relation to an abortion. But we're looking at it, we're thinking, yeah, it's, it's, it's vile. And we see those videos and we almost don't want to watch the videos or hear them talking about it. And, and we just kind of turn our head. And if I showed videos or pictures of, you know, a severed baby's hand next to a dime or a quarter and you see the intricacy of the fingernails and you see the people would be disgusted, I'd get letters. It's just how it is. Well, that's how it was in the North. That's how it was with slavery. And he's fighting a cultural issue where even those in the North were willing to tolerate slavery and the enslavement of another human being. And he stands and, and he, he fights for that. And, and, and most of the people engage in the fight over states' rights and the preservation of the Union. Well, he makes it even more clear. He says, this is about slavery. And he put the Emancipation Proclamation in there, and it infuriated the North. And as the war is dragging on, and now we're at, at almost 500,000, 600,000 dead, every family's been affected by it, and, and these folks are being massacred. And, and, and you look at Ulysses S. Grant, the reason why he was successful, as a, he was an alcoholic as a general, he, he would just pour troops in, and the idea was just to break the meat grinder. You look at the Battle of the Wilderness, and you look at Shiloh, these, the, the, the amount of Union soldiers that died just being put into to Confederate cannons, they, they, they wiped them out. And it was just an attrition rate, and they just worked the, the Southern Army down to a, a stub. And, and the Army of Virginia was, was decimated. And he just kept pursuing them and frontal assault and frontal assault. Well, the death toll just kept coming in. And, and Lincoln was reviled in the country. His popularity rating was terrible. And he knew he was going to not get a second term of office and lose to McClellan, who was the, the general who was a Democrat. And he knew that when McClellan got into office, he would seal the Mason-Dixon line and allow the southern states to retain their slavery positions and, and continue on, and they would divide the Union. And everyone was tired of war. Nobody likes to fight. And, and if you can imagine the idea of how many died... It would be the equivalent of 9 million dead today in the United States of America per capita of what they faced. Could you imagine 9 million people in the U.S. dying in a, in a civil war? On our own land. And it was so bad that the man who had once supported him, Horace Greeley, wrote this. On July 7th, he said, Our bleeding, bankrupt, almost dying country longs for peace, shudders at the prospect of fresh conscriptions, of further wholesale devastations, and new rivers of human blood. Lincoln realized the writing was on the wall. The press was against him. The nation was disgusted with war. Nobody had the fervor or the backbone to fight anymore, and nobody really thought that defending the life of an enslaved human being was really worth losing this many people of our own skin color. They were, they were taught that a, a black man or a black woman was, was half human. It, it's not a human being. It's a blob of tissue. It's easy to justify our apathy. And nobody wants to fight. 
And they mustered to go forward. And, and, and as thousands in every battle and the report of dead came into every city, people tired of it. And Lincoln wrote in his journal in August of 1864, he said, exceedingly probable that this administration will not be reelected. He knew it so much that he called Frederick Douglass into the White House and he said, you need to get south of the Mason-Dixon line and get every black man and woman north of the Mason-Dixon line because McClellan will seal the border and they'll all be slaves. You get them north, go do it. Frederick Douglass said, that man didn't look at me as subhuman. He looked at me as an equal. Wouldn't it be neat if we had leaders of courage like that? And just as it was about to be over on September 3rd, Sherman, General Sherman, makes it down to Atlanta. General Sherman wrote, as he watched houses burning and by his own hand and by the, the war that he had engaged in, and he did this at a commencement address at a military academy in Michigan. He said, war is hell. It was at the end of his speech. He was interviewed later. He said, yeah, war is hell, but I thank God that soldiers are from heaven. They hold off evil. They hold the line. On March 4th, 1865, after Lincoln had been elected to a second term of office in, in that November, he is now giving his second inaugural address on March 4th. I've shared this. It was 703 words long. 505 of them were single-syllable words. 25 sentences, four paragraphs. And it took seven minutes to read the second inaugural address. In the first paragraph of the four, he said, there's no need for a long address. And you can almost hear a sigh of relief. What was fascinating is it had been nonstop raining. There had been no sun for five days. They said it was five to eight inches of mud throughout all of Washington. All these women dressed in their, their regalia and lovely outfits, men in their suits were just covered in mud. They said over 50,000 black men and women had gathered, the largest gathering uh, of, of blacks in the history of the United States to hear the great emancipator speak. As they had crowded to, to hear his second inaugural address, and he says there's no need for, for a long address, he goes into the second paragraph. And, and mind you, as he's doing this on, on March 4th, 1865, the war is going to be over shortly. Sherman has gone down, split the, the southern states, and, and they're wrapping up the war. He turns in his second paragraph, and he looks out to the audience, and he says this idea of how we got into this war. He explains to them that one of the sides would make war rather than let the nation survive, and the other would accept war rather than let it perish. So he defined the terms of how they got there. But then the next four words of the second inaugural address set the thesis of what he was desiring to do. He just simply said this, and the war came. Now we talk about veterans, we talk about war, and the war came. One would, would seek to divide the nation, and the other would, would, would fight to defend it, and the war came. What is worth fighting for? And why as Christians do we not we're so concerned with our self-focus that this idea of greater love has no man than this than to lay down his life for a friend. Everything about our life is, what is what's in it for me. I need help. Help me. Help me. 
When God says, if you want to be great in my kingdom, you're a servant of all. When I saw Travis Mills and I saw the sacrifice he gave, greater love has no man than this and to lay down his life for a friend. God took his life one piece at a time. He's still got a, a core remaining. And so when he said, and the war came, he had this idea that the sovereign hand of God, that nothing reaches us, it doesn't first pass through the sovereign hand of God. War comes when, when evil invades and the good defends and they clash. We're in a world where evil exists, yes? And there will be war when you stand to defend what is right, yes? Peace is not the absence of conflict. Peace is not the absence of conflict. A Christian can be a Christian of peace and still be one engaged in war. Peace, according to Christ, is the presence of God in the midst of the conflict. Peace I give you, not as the world gives peace, give I unto you. In the midst of the conflict, his peace that surpasses all understanding will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus that you can stand in defense of the gospel. And no weapon fashioned against you will stand. And you're more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. This, this, when Paul talks about the armor of God, this is significant because God expects his people to move forward in advance of the gospel. And the weaponry that, that Paul describes is all for advancement. There's, there's nothing protecting behind. And it's not so we build our little enclaves and, and our shelters up in Montana. The engagement comes when we take the ideas and the words that are living and breathing and engage them in culture to transform a nation that is worthy to defend. And that nation design then has what are called ministers of justice to execute wrath on those who would do evil. Those are the military. We are the ones that give them the ability to defend against the evil that would seek to destroy that which we have established as good based on the scriptures that God has called us to. That is our calling. And people say, well, the church is about preaching the gospel. The gospel is transformative. It establishes culture. I don't do politics. Yes, you do. That is the calling of a Christian. I, I, don't, I don't engage in, in media. Yes, you do. That is the culture of Christians to transform every nook and cranny of the world. And, and you don't want to, and I get it, because you're going to face conflict. You're facing a conflict of ideas. They are defending a position for which we defend in ideas, and we're afraid to be offended. And they're losing their life and defending ours so that we can fight a war of words based on ideas that transform a culture. And if we don't, they're fighting for nothing but land. And, and, it, and it, they become disillusioned. PTSD will go through the roof. There won't be enough drugs to take away their depression. This is our calling. And when he said, and the war came... The war came because they were willing, as he had said previously, that one would make war rather than let the nation survive and the other would accept war rather than let it perish. And the war came. In the third paragraph, as he was coming to the close of his speech, it was only seven minutes long, he reminded the audience of why this is all happening. 
And he reminded them of the specter of slavery that hovered over the land four years before. Now, the north was like, wait a minute. This isn't about slavery. This is about keeping the union together. The union is a union of ideas. That all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, among those being life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And and, and he saw this. And it was worth fighting for and defending. His was a war of words, and, and, and the veteran was the, the war to defend those words. And then he gave the moral case. The moral case that caused his audience to almost be disgusted with his second inaugural address. You could hear an audible gasp, witnesses say. And this is the moral case that burned in Lincoln's mind. He said, Both read the same Bible and pray to the same God. He says, It's hard for a righteous man to understand how anyone could ask God to help him profit from another man's enslavement. And then he said, The Almighty has his own purposes. At that point, you know what he did? He said, Let me tell all of you who are listening that we're in this war... Because we are immoral. We are apathetic to the cause of the common man. Our black brothers and sisters. Who we have relegated to being subhuman by our words. That are contrary to the scriptures that declare that all men are created in the image of God. And the crowd was stunned. They almost almost refused to believe they'd heard him correctly. You don't hear this in history, but that second inaugural address stunned the the entire audience. Lincoln had come close to prosecuting the South, which is what they wanted him to do. But now he turned instead to prosecute the nation. You see, it's hard to celebrate Veterans Day. We're thankful for what they've done, but we're wondering really what's worth defending. And the prosecution of the nation... He said, instead, God gave, gave the war. Yes, God, and he did so as payment for sin. He said this. Inaugural address, he said, God gave this war as payment for sin. The sin of American slavery. The way he did is he said, if God wills that it, the war, continue until all the wealth piled up by the bondsman, bondsman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword. As was said 3,000 years ago, so still must be said that the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Quoting Psalm 19.9. He said, With malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, and to care for him who, have, who shall have borne the battle, and for his widow and his orphan to do all which may achieve a cherish and, and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. They were stunned. How dare you call us sinners? We have vanquished the South. We are victors. He says, no, you're sinners. And we're in this war because you would have the audacity to call another man subhuman. And until we get that right, every man and woman that died died in vain. 
He was in the reception line. And people sneered at him after the second inaugural address. People wouldn't even look him in the eye. He wrote in his journal that night, men are not flattered by being shown that there has been a difference of purpose between the Almighty and them. I think about the gift we've been given of this nation with our veterans and what we've fought for. How do we honor them? Paul writes in Romans, I'm almost finished. Paul writes in Romans 1, he says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. And I think veterans, because your faith is being reported all over the world. God whom I serve with my whole heart is preaching the gospel of his son is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. The idea that we have these freedoms, it's a good thing to remember. That tonight as you go to bed, in your comfortable bed, there are men and women defending a nation that we're not even willing to define, or we're not even willing to define, stand for. To thank the Lord for them. Paul writes in Philippians 2, let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. I think the body of Christ needs to get a, a real rude awakening that it's not about you. It's not about me. It's about Jesus. We need to get over ourselves and realize that what is being defended, we have a responsibility here to make sure it's worth defending. Part of looking out for the interests of others is paying attention to others. Did you thank a veteran today? I got 10 minutes. I'm going to close with... I've shared it, but I, I just... I think it needs reflection again. This nation was, was conceived in liberty, dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. This is a Gettysburg Address that... Abraham Lincoln so clearly refreshed the memory of Americans because four score and seven years ago, our forefathers brought forth on this nation or on this continent a new nation, dedicated the proposition that all men are created equal. He was reflecting back to July 4, 1776. And this war of independence was a result of men and women being subjugated by a crown of despotism. And they laid out, based on natural law, why they were called to revolt against the king. And they used natural law, which is what mankind is subject to. It doesn't matter if you're Protestant or Catholic, or everyone is bound by gravity. Natural law is those things that we're bound by. And they deferred to that, and they wrote this Declaration of Independence. And they were gathered. I mean, you had Methodists, you had Presbyterians, you had Baptists. They were all gathered. And, and as they gathered to fight, all of this occurred um, in March of 1776. What happened in March of 1776 is the Americans held Dorchester Heights over Boston. And the British were 
massing forces in Boston, and it was only going to be a matter of time when the snows thawed that the British would march up and annihilate the Continental forces. Washington realized the only way that he could defend Dorchester Heights was to have armament. He needed firepower. He needed cannons, and he had none. So a young man by the name of Henry Knox, who was a bookseller in Boston, had read some books on artillery, and he'd heard the story about all of the artillery that was left over at Fort Ticonderoga. And he went to Washington, he says, if you'll secure me some wagons, I can get over the mountains and and over the lakes, they'll be frozen, I can take them by sled, and then by the time that the snows thaw, I can put them on wagons and bring them here in time for the British as they start to ascend up Dorchester Heights. Washington knew it was his only hope. He sends this, this young guy, he, he commissioned him a colonel. He had never served in the military before. He was a bookseller. He had thick glasses. I mean, he was kind of rotund. And, and here he goes off, Henry Knox. He gets to the fort. He takes the cannonry. It's, it's one of the greatest feats of engineering ever accomplished. He gets them back. They get him up to Dorchester Heights, and it was endless. They were pushing, pushing, pushing. Horses were dying. Even some sank in the lake. He retrieved them through pulleys and, and all kinds of systems of engineering. He got them there, and on March, March 4th, I think it was, they, they finally got them through fog. Fog had covered all of Boston Harbor, except for at the top of Dorchester Heights. It was completely clear on a full moon night. And everything was covered. So nobody knew. And they're assembling the cannon. When the fogs lifted, uh, Hal looked and he saw massive uh, American artillery. And they began to shell Boston Harbor. And they decimated the British and they evacuated Boston. And, and the, the American forces were thrilled. And they went into this victory overjoyed. A couple of skirmishes through the spring, and by July 4th of 1776, they gathered together, and they gave us our birth certificate that we've been under now for, what, 239 years, the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be, oh, no, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, among those being life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And, and to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. And they write this, and they give all the reasons for why they're separating from, from England. And, and they, they sign that document on July 4, 1776. And you think, wow. And here we are in this experiment in liberty, a nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. We've survived 239 years under one birth certificate, while every nation on the face of the earth has gone through multiple changes of government. We have had more patents. We've had more Nobel Peace Prize winners. We've had more inventions, more symphonies written. We are a nation that represents 3% of the world's population, yet we've been responsible for the greatest industrial revolution in the history of the world, the largest amassing of wealth of any nation ever in the history of the world. 87 cents of every dollar in evangelism comes from the United States of America, a nation dedicated to liberty, founded on these principles and dedicated to God. I mean, when Washington had, when they inaugurated him as president, the very first thing he did is he went to the old stone church and he kneeled down and he prayed and dedicated the nation to God. And as, as they sign this declaration that all men are created equal, endowed by their creator, recognizing God, recognizing the responsibilities of man, you think, this is so cool. Well, much like Moses, when he was told to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go, what did Pharaoh do? He goes, who is God that I should obey him? So what does he do? He takes away the straw, and he doubles the amount of bricks that they have to make, and the people begin to whine. Because he knew that if he could break the backs of God's people, he'd win. Just make it hard so they whine a little bit more. 
Moses stood firm. Well, the same thing happened in the Revolutionary War. August 27, 1776, General Howe leads 15,000 troops against Washington's army in the Battle of Long Island. Washington, outnumbered two to one, suffers a severe defeat as his army is outflanked and scatters. The Americans retreat to Brooklyn Heights. They're able to get over the East River because fogs descend and hold back the British fleet, which was fortuitous. It was God's hand of providence, and they'd been praying. And, and, and they, they get out with what's left. On October 11th, the big defeat of the inexperienced uh, American Navy on Lake Champlain at the hands of the British fleet, 87 gunships in the seven-hour battle of Battle of Alcor Bay, most of the American flotilla of 83 gunships is crippled with the remaining ships destroyed. The entire Navy is decimated by October. October 28th, the evacua- uh, after evacuating his main forces from Manhattan, Washington suffers heavy casualties in the Battle of White Plains. All of his... Um, Cannons are stolen in November. More victories of the British as Fort Washington on Manhattan and its precious stores of over 100 cannons, thousands of muskets and cartridges are captured by General Howe. The Americans lose Fort Lee in New Jersey. General Cornwallis, uh, to General Cornwallis, Washington's army suffers 3,000 casualties and two defeats. He abandons New York and he moves further westward toward the Delaware River. Cornwallis pursues him. December 6th, the naval base at Newport, Rhode Island is captured by the British. It's over. It's over. They they wrote the document and they lost battle after battle after battle after battle after battle. Conscriptions for these fleeting Continental Army are going to be up January 1. Only, Only one in nine Americans fought in the Revolutionary War. They're tired This experiment in liberty really isn't worth defending and fighting. I mean, I want to go home. It's Wednesday night. I'm tired. Could you shut up and let me go home, right? (laughs) And here you are in a nation that's worth defending. And battle after battle after battle, they're losing. On December 11, 1776, Washington takes his troops across the Delaware River into Pennsylvania. And the next day, over concerns of possible British attack, the Continental Congress abandons Philadelphia for Baltimore. They just leave Philadelphia to the British. And they just march right in. This is where they had signed the Declaration of Independence, and now it's in British hands. And among Washington's troops is a guy by the name of Thomas Paine, who actually ends up being an atheist and, and decries his Christian faith. He actually died penniless. He was in prison, actually, in France. But Thomas Paine was an amazing writer. He felt like an Ayn Rand, or Ayn Rand. He didn't have a real love for the things of God, but he understood freedom. And, and he, he wrote, These are the times that try men's souls. The summer soldier and the sunshine patriot will in this crisis shrink from the service of his country. But he, but he that stands now deserves the love and thanks of man and woman. That's Veterans Day. Tyranny like hell is not easily conquered, yet we have this consolation with us that the harder the conflict, the more glorious the triumph. Washington is so moved by this American crisis as he's watching his soldiers dying of dysentery. A third of his troops were dying of dysentery. He could only muster 2,400 troops, and a third of the 2,400 troops had to wrap their feet in burlap sacks because they had no boots in the coldest winter on the eastern seaboard in the history of the nation. And in five days, their conscriptions would be up and this experiment in liberty would be over. And these 2,400 veterans, on Christmas Day, 
armed only with what remains of the muskets and the limited ammunitions they have, and a copy of the pamphlet, Words, by Thomas Paine. Words. Like Churchill's words, like the word we read here that is to inspire us and move us. These men muster. And they recross the Delaware. And then Washington conducts a surprise raid on the 1,500 British Hessians, German mercenaries at Trenton, New Jersey. And after an hour with nearly 1,000 prisoners taken by Washington who only suffered six wounded, including the future president, Lieutenant James Monroe, he was wounded. He reoccupies Trenton. And the victory provided a much-needed boost to the morale and of all American people. And this experiment in liberty continued. And today, because of those 2,400 men that marched 11 miles, left a trail of blood, many of them froze to death, you sit here. Why? What's the point? Oh, it's about the gospel. I come for a Bible study. Good. What are you doing about it? How is that Bible transforming the culture in which you live? How is it affecting what is worth defending? How is it designing and creating a culture that values life? Are we just tired? I left today from that lunch table watching a man eat with a prosthetic arm. I thought, I'm sick of whining. Apathy is no longer tolerated in the body of Christ. Not in this room. There's work to be done. There's lives to be changed. Engage the culture. This is a war of words so that those who are given the ministry of justice to execute wrath on those who would do evil could say, I'm doing the right thing because I know the land in which I defend is occupied by men and women who love the truth and love good. And they've established a country through their actions that's worthy to defend. Or are you just going to make it so a guy loses all four limbs to defend land? We've got an honorable calling. Let's make sure we complete it while we're on this earth. Amen? To all you veterans, thank you. And I'm going to do my best to honor the land that you've defended. Make it a land worth defending.